Uh, thank you, brothers. Just to echo what everyone has said, it's just a privilege to be, uh, to be with you. Um, when members of your district presidium saw me present on this at a different conference, they asked if, you know, I, it was it's real easy if I could come and do it again at, uh, at district. So I apologize if there's some of you who've seen this before. Um, you, I mean, you're in comfortable seats in a dark room. You are more than welcome to nap. Uh, frankly, if you haven't seen it before, you're more than welcome to nap as, nap as well. Uh, authentic Christian presence, uh, under that theme, the best path forward in a post-Christian nation, uh, this will kind of break into, into three parts. Uh, first of all, I, I want to walk through the history of the 20th century uh, American Christianity just to demonstrate that we are indeed a post-Christian nation. I'll get pushed back against that. Oh, no, we're not. We're still Christian. It's not, not even close in America. Um, by post-Christian, I mean that Christianity is not at the center of our American identity anymore. Um, it is uh, Practicing Christianity is something that only a small percentage, a small minority of Americans still engage in. Uh, so it is a post-Christian nation. So we'll walk through the 20th century and kind of watch that unfold. Then we'll talk about what the underlying factors for that are and how that changed the way, I think, changes the way we need to think of um, the lost that we're trying to reach, the lost, the unchurched, the de-churched uh, uh, that, that are all around us. Uh, and then finally, when we kind of identify what's different about uh, the American populace that we're trying to reach with the gospel, uh, what's the best way to do that now in a post-Christian nation, which I think is, is uh, this thing that we'll call authentic Christian presence. Um, the presentation that I gave at the other conference was also not a paper. Uh, it was a presentation, so I can't give you like citations and stuff like that. Just know that um, my clicker working here. Um, that the, the thoughts aren't mine alone. There's lots of books I can reference, uh, um, and I can make these slides available to you, and they have the footnotes in there. Um, the phrase authentic Christian presence comes primarily from a book uh, that was recommended to me maybe six years ago by, uh, at the time, President uh, Paul Wendland of the seminary uh, by Dr. James Davison Hunter called Authentic Christian Presence. Uh, you want something to, good to put on your leading, reading list, I'd recommend this book. The subtitle talks about the possibility of Christianity in the late modern world. Uh, so it's an actual, you know, very optimistic view of, of how Christianity can still engage with a late modern post-Christian post -Christian culture. We begin with Matthew 24, um, one of the great end times chapter where Jesus spends most of the time in that chapter talking about the coming end of the world. Uh, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of the wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Welsh people know this passage very well. Um, the reason I say that is, is part, of, part of my job, is, as uh, President Zank mentioned, is I work with congregations. And when we work with congregations, uh, um, we do things like demographic analysis, statistical analysis, and sometimes in the statistical analysis, you know, we'll just we'll look at the trajectory that's facing a lot of our congregations where they're kind of at a point of existential crisis of, you know, are we going to make it um, past the, ne the next decade? Inevitably, when, when, that, when they wrestle with that, someone says, yes, but pastor, you know, this is what Jesus said, the love of most will grow cold in the end times. And Jesus did say that. The question is why? 
it certainly wasn't so that we could then maybe predict when Judgment Day was coming, because in the same chapter he says it's going to be completely at an unexpected time, uh, even those who are devoted followers. So uh, if you guess, like when you look at what's happening in the world, oh, the end times are, as soon as you guess, you're probably wrong. Uh, it just, Jesus didn't give us this chapter so that we could make a prediction of when he was going to return. He also certainly didn't give it so that we would be resigned with what we see happening in American Christianity, that we, well, there's you know, really nothing that we can do. That's the way, there's a part of me would like to use that passage. It's my sinful nature. My sinful nature would like to look at what's happening in our synod or what's happening in our, my personal, my, my home congregation and say, this is entirely about the world. The love of most has grown cold and that this has nothing to do with me, with my zeal with my ministry, ministry efforts. Uh, that's how my sinful nature would like to use it, but that's certainly not what Jesus intended to kind of just encourage resignation. Well, it's okay, in the end, everyone's going to go cold. I think he, he means it to do the exact opposite of promote resignation. That's to promote a healthy type of zeal and passion for gospel ministry. You see it in the contrast there. Many will turn away. Many false prophets, many will be deceived, most will go cold. So after many, many, many most, but the one. Uh, Jesus says there are going to be some that I'm going to hold in my hand and preserve in the faith, and they're going to keep on doing gospel ministry until I return. Which is fascinating, then, the only other thing that Jesus talks about uh, in, in Matthew 24, other than Judgment Day, is stewardship. Uh, later in the chapter, he asks, Who then is the wise and faithful servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Jesus talks about stewardship requiring faith. You have to be faithful, uh, which means true to the word of God, not twisting or, or perverting it. Being motivated by the gospel rather than law or a sense of fear of what's happening to us, uh, that would be part of being faithful. But Jesus also says that to practice stewardship requires wisdom. And the Greek word there is not the normal word we think for wisdom. The Greek word there, probably it's a simple translation, would be horse sense. The ability to look at something and determine what seems to be working and what isn't. Uh, what the Lord see, efforts the Lord seems to be blessing and which ones don't seem to be gaining traction. Jesus says in the end times, to be a steward of the resources God has given us, it's going to require faith, but it's also going to require wisdom, that we use the God-given gift, the first article gift of reason, just to say what in the world is happening to the world and to our churches, and what are we going to attempt to do about it? Uh, what is happening to our churches, again, I apologize if you've seen me present on some of these things before. I've brought in this slide up a number of times. It charts the American religious landscape over the last 50 years. We belong to the group called mainline denominations. Uh, that would include things like uh, Presbyterians, Methodists. Uh, that peaked in the early 70s and has been on in decline ever since. I served for 20 years in Charleston, South Carolina, the buckle of the Bible Belt, the home of the evangelicals. People think, oh, Southern Baptists, they really get after it. Southern Baptists have lost members for 25 straight years. The evangelicals, the non-denominationals as well, uh, they are in a prolonged decline. 
If you look at that graph, there's only one religious grouping that has grown over the last 50 years. You see what it is? The nuns. Americans who identify as having no religion. It doesn't mean they're atheists. Uh, it just means that they're not interested in being affiliated with any church. Uh, the percentage of Americans who belong to some sort of religious institution in 1950 uh, was 86%. We'll talk about that when we talk about the eras of Christianity. 2020 was the first time that the Pew Research Group said that that's now the minority of Americans, that it's only 47% of Americans who belong to church. And of course, that doesn't mean that they're active. It just means that they're, that they're members. And that already in those two years has dropped closer to like 43%. This is affecting every, just about every Christian denomination. There's only one Christian denomination that, I, that I've seen in America that uh, is kind of plateaued or growing a little bit. It's a charismatic one, interestingly, a small charismatic church. But every other denomination is in a, pro uh, uh, a prolonged decline. Uh, here's an article that was written a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm just going to focus on Lutherans. Um, by someone in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, kind of my counterpart, uh, their statistics guy, who thinks by 2041 they're going to be down to 16,000 in worship. They currently have 4 million members. So they're saying in 17 years, we're only going to be worshiping 16,000 people. Matt Harrison, a couple of years ago, president of the Missouri Synod, uh, published a report that said in the last 15 years, they had lost a half a million members. Uh, and he said in the next 10 years, we're going to lose another half a million. And they're actually way ahead of that pace. Uh, that's a 25% drop um, that they're projecting in, in a decade. Uh, Wells membership losses uh, over the years. Our peak was 1990 when we had 421,000 members. In the decade after that, we lost about 17,000, 4% of our members. In the decade after that, we lost about 21,000, 5.1% of our members. In the decade after that, we lost, 40, most recent one, 43,000, 11.2% of our members. Um, I, I'll be also around at this entire conference. You want to talk the vacancy rate? I, I'm fascinated by this topic. Wells today has 30 more churches than we did at our height in 1990, 30 more congregations. We have 81,000 fewer members. We have enlarged our congregational footprint, our infrastructure, while our membership is contra contracted. And the membership of people who are the age that they would consider going into ministry, that's contracted even more than our overall membership. We're losing Generation Z and, and Millennials at a faster rate than other generations. So that's part of, part of the challenge that we're facing. The point being, every, every Christian denomination is facing these, these challenges. Uh, so you'll, you'll hear from Kurt Nitz tomorrow talk about culture and thought habits. Um, just a quick preview. I mean, he'll talk about how behavior flows out of our thoughts, thoughts flows out of our experiences. So from a church perspective, then, our ministry practices throw out of, flow out of what we, we might call a philosophy of ministry, a way we think this is, this is a smart way to approach ministry. That philosophy of ministry, those thought habits of ministry, those flow from our experiences, um, what's happened in the past. Um, how have we done things in the past? So the question I want to you to wrestle with in this first session is, how much of our current ministry strategy and tactics are shaped by thoughts rooted in 20th century realities? Realities which, which aren't true any longer. 
So that brings us to the first thing I said we're going to talk about. Let's talk about the four eras of 20th century American Christianity. Again, this is not just my thoughts. A lot of guys have written about this. Uh, the first one is what we'll call the rise of modernism and fundamentalism. Uh, um, modernism had been around before the 20th century, uh, but it really takes root in America in the early 1900s with the rise of Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. Uh, uh, modernism is the worldview that says, due to enlightened human thinking and due to scientific advancement, we will eventually understand absolutely everything about the human existence, and therefore we'll be able to solve just about every problem. That's a modernistic view of the world. That scientific worldview also started to creep into religion. Again, the historical critical method, a liberal approach to interpreting the Bible, it had been around for centuries, but it gains traction in the early 1900s. That guy up there on the, uh, on the right, that's uh, Carl Bultmann, a Lutheran theologian who wrote about the need to demythologize scripture. So you read the flood account, and he would say, of course, that can't be real. Uh, um, so what, what, what was the message? What was the author trying to tell us in this myth of, of, about the flood? Uh, so the rise of, of modernism, modern thought and scientific world and progressive thought within uh, 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 the religious world. There's pushback against that, which is then the rise of fundamentalism. You have a couple of oil tycoons who bring in 64 theologians, uh, some from America, some from Europe, uh, to publish a series of pamphlets that you see on the left called the Fundamentals. Uh, kind of the irreducible Christian beliefs, pushback against modernism. Uh, they made the case that, it, you know, with, with modernistic thought creeping into theology, it starts with the denying of like, things like miracles and it ends up in, in atheism. Not wrong. Uh, um, so you have these two competing uh, views. Uh, modernism and, and fundamentalism. Uh, a pushback against the church and a trying to hold on of the church. It starts to portray itself in culture. Um, so you have modern art, which is a pushback against traditional concepts of beauty. Uh, you have pushbacks against traditional social norms. Uh, I remember hearing my great-grandma Hirschstead talking about uh, those naughty flapper girls uh, who would wear skirts, you know, above their knees, which in the 1920s was, that, that's like Lady Gaga-ish today. Uh, just scandalous. So culture, kind of a culture war uh, that's taking place. Um, just as the modernists pushed the culture, so also then the fundamentalists, as you have the Anti-Evolution League beginning to form at this time. Uh, various, uh, uh, what you would call piety movements, uh, like Prohibition. This is the time that that's going on. So what you have in the, those first 40 years of the 20th century is a battle for the heart of America. Is America going to slip into complete secular humanism like Europe, or is America going to retain its kind of central religion, Christianity, at its heart? Uh, um, you read some of the articles from that time. This is from the Pathfinder, which was an East Coast publication um, aimed mainly at young adults from 1920. Uh, just lamenting that of the 110 million Americans, it's only, it was only about a third at that time. This is so 1920s that were really involved in a church. Most sociologists would say that if th something hadn't intervened, America would have become post-Christian, just like Europe, already by 1940. Well, something intervened. In the Nazi concentration camps, in the kamikaze bombers of Japan, soldiers who were willing to die for their God, 
who they believed was their emperor. That was kind of like a wake-up call for America. We, we, we knew we needed to kind of shake ourselves out of this malaise. And that leads to, then to the second era of 20th century American Christianity, post-war revivalism from 1940 to 1960. After World War II comes the rise of the Soviet Union and communism, uh, where obviously Christianity is outlawed. Uh, so we knew that that was going on. Uh, we lived with kind of this cloud of existential death hanging over our head uh, because of the arms race. This is the decades that bomb shelters are being built in the backyards, that children are given gas masks and doing exercises about that uh, in schools because we just thought at any moment uh, nuclear war uh, uh, could break out. This is the time when even the American government was pushing religion. Children had been reciting the Pledge of Allegiance since about 18, uh, I think it's 1892. That phrase, under God, one nation under God, was not added until 1953. We had almost never put any reference about God on our money. Abraham Lincoln did on the two-cent piece in the Civil War. But House Resolution 619, passed in 1954, mandated that every bill we print, every coin we stamp, had to say, in God we trust. Americans were going to rally around Christianity, around religion, as kind of uh, keeping us together against the, against the godless communists. So the mindset of churches in these two decades was, as long as we have our doors open and we're kind of patriotic, people are going to show up. And it happened. Uh, most sociologists will, will speculate. It's hard to know for sure because people lie about church attendance. Uh, um, but speculate that it was during the Eisenhower years that what we'll call cultural Christianity, American Christianity, would at, was at its peak with over 70% of Americans going to church on a pretty regular basis. That's higher than even then during the, the colonial periods. Post-war revivalism didn't just cause this rallying around church. It also led to... Uh, the baby boom. Um, as the soldiers they had, came back, they had a bunch of kids, and then those kids had a bunch of kids. The baby boom then leads to the, a fascinating phenomenon in American history, the rise of the American suburb. The growth period in these two decades on a percentage basis was higher than it was during colonialism when we were having all those boats coming over. Uh, we were just having babies at such a fast rate. Where do we put them? Well, we're going to build out these suburbs, and that leads to the third phase of American Christianity. Build it and boomers will come from 1960 to 1980. It's fascinating when you read uh, the mission plans of various denominations for those two decades. It was completely rooted in demographics. And so say a suburb was being built uh, outside of Atlanta and they thought eventually 10,000 people were going to live there. The Methodists would just say, well, we know that 20% of Georgia is Methodist. And so we need to build enough churches in that suburb uh, to, to, to take care of 2,000 people. It was entirely based in demographics and the growth of the suburbs. Um, so you have churches popping up everywhere. This is also the era in the 20th century where churches began to expand their programming. Uh, prior to World War I, I mean World War II, churches, they, I mean they offered worship. They maybe had a Sunday school for kids. There was almost no such thing as adult Bible class for adults, even in the wells. 
They maybe had a vacation Bible school, but there just wasn't a lot of programming uh, uh, that churches did. Because communities couldn't keep, were growing so fast, they couldn't keep up um, with the needed programming of the community. Churches kind of filled the void. And so you have churches, for example, every denomination getting into building Christian schools. Well, that had kind of been known by the Lutherans and Catholics uh, prior to this. Now all of them are building Christian schools. Uh, you have them offering things like uh, base athletic leagues, different types of groups, even uh, counseling programs like Alcoholics Anonymous. Churches just started offering more programming. This was the mindset back then. If we just build churches in these growing subdivisions, and if we can offer the right programs, people will come. The 60s were not just a time of uh, lots of churches being built, it's also a time of great tumult, um, whether it's the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, or the Birmingham incidents of 63, which leads later that year to the, the march on Washington, D.C. It wasn't just the civil rights movement, but uh, the women's liberation movement uh, is active at this time. 63 is also when Kennedy is assassinated. That's followed a few, la few years later by uh, uh, Martin Luther King being assassinated. Of course, Vietnam's going on at this time. Uh, we were first in Vietnam in 61. Kennedy sent in 600 Green Berets. By 69, it was a half a million uh, American boys that are over there, and they were dying, and dying bad. Punji sticks, napalm, it was, uh, um, uh, it was rough. This leads to a shift in the mindset of Americans. We talked about how modernism uh, was this belief that, you know, just because as we're enlightened thinking and scientific uh, methods, we can understand everything and we can solve all human problems. Um, knowledge is certain, inevitable progress, whatever contributes to progress, that's what morality is. And the 60s just said, this is nonsense. We're very scientific, but we're not solving any problems. The world seems to be getting scarier and more dangerous. And that's when Americans' worldview shifts to what we sometimes call postmodernism, which the worldview is that nothing is certain, so just get by. There really isn't such a thing as absolute truth, only relative truth. It's true for you. It doesn't necessarily have to be true for me. And morality is simply, if you don't hurt anyone, then it's moral. Just as there was social upheaval during the introduction of modernism, so also there's social upheaval during the introduction of postmodernism. Uh, as long as you aren't hurting anybody. So whatever you want to do sexually, whatever you want to do in the terms of alcohol or psychedelic drugs, that's, that's totally fine. So the, the 60s through and 80s are a fascinating point in, in American Christianity. Because on the one hand, you've got Christian infrastructure just being built out. This is part of the, part of the boom. Well, this is kind of followed a little bit later, but the boom of, of church expansion um, in America at the same time that Christian beliefs and values are absolutely cratering. That fewer and fewer boomers are buying into the Christian faith. They're certainly not handing it down to their children. And so now that we have this cycle, this leads us to the final, fourth and final phase of American Christianity in the 20th century. Christian leaders identified this. 
Um, and they said, how are we going to pull people into church? They're walking away. There's more competition because we've built more churches. How are we going to pull people into our church? The last 20 years are what sometimes are called the seeker-sensitive era. Um, someone earlier referenced the nuns. That comes from Dr. James Emery White's book, The Rise of the Nuns. It's a great book if you want to kind of understand this collapse from the baby boomers on of interest in, Christian, interest in Christianity. Um, churches said, how are we going to pull people in? And they largely thought about it in terms of marketing, which was a big deal when you think about it in the, in the 80s and 90s. After the Carter malaise, where like, there was nothing being produced and, and not much being sold, um, all of a sudden comes the Reagan boom years, and so I'm, I'm a Michigan boy. You know, you got the big three automobile companies, and each of them are selling 14 different vehicles. You had to market to try and get your product out there, and churches kind of thought, well, that's what, that's what we need to do as well. A couple of big names I'm sure you, you've heard before, the guy on the left, uh, Rick Warren uh, out in Saddleback, that's Los Angeles area. Uh, Bill Hybels in, in Chicago uh, at his church. Those are kind of the OGs of the seeker-sensitive area, the original gangsters. Then comes Andy Stanley more in the 90s um, down in the in Georgia area, followed by Greg, Craig Greshel uh, down in Houston. Uh, uh, you read all of these guys, and they all say the exact same thing. Uh, they say that, yes, people have the absolute needs for the forgiveness of sins and salvation. They just don't know that, they need, that that's a need of theirs. They don't, Americans, they would say, don't, they don't understand that anymore. And so instead, we have to think of, about their perceived needs. What is it they think they need, they think they want? What is it they think they want in terms of a church? And let's give it to them. This affects everything that churches were doing. This is when you see worship changing drastically. This is the last 20 years of the 20th century, um, where the whole concept of building a sacred space where the architecture reflected certain theological truths was gone. Just let's, let's just build an, an, an auditorium. Uh, the whole concept of like the church here, um, the, the seeker-sensitive seeker churches would still have like high festivals like Easter, um, but the rest of the pericope, the life of Christ, um, at the very least they'd package it in a series and typically they'd punt it and try and package it in a series that they thought would be more appealing, uh, more enticing to, to unchurched people. Uh, even the way they would talk about uh, um, trying to do evangelism. So Billy Graham, uh, he's the guy who kind of spanned three of those eras from post-war revivalism all to the seeker-sensitive era. Uh, when you read his training materials for his members to do evangelism, he would teach them to say, let me tell you about Jesus. Read Rick Warren's evangelism training manual for his members at Saddleback. They don't mention Jesus. He says, you should, you should, let me tell you about my church, how nice it is, how many programs we have, how good the coffee is, those types of things. Just a, just a, a complete pivot. Uh, so those are the four eras real quickly. By the way, when do we, when do we go to? We had 45 minutes, and uh, I was thinking maybe about 10 to. 10 to. 10 to. All right, we're, we're doing well then. Um, so behavior, thoughts, experiences, our, 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 the way we do ministry flows out of our thought habits about ministry, our thought habits flow from our experiences. Which brings me back to that question, how much of our church ministry strategy and tactics are shaped by thoughts rooted in 20th century realities? If this was like a day seminar, I'd, I'd have you go into breakout groups and write this down. This, this is what I believe is what, is, what most churches think. 
Um, and, and I include a lot of Wells churches in that as well. Uh, that basically there's a number of different ways that we can try and get the unchurched, the lost, into our church. And the more of these doors that you have open, the better chance you have at reaching your community. Um, there's the pastor. Uh, you need a good pastor, uh, hopefully a good preacher with a good personality that, who gets along with the 80-year-old ladies and yet also can play squirt, gun, squirt guns with the 13-year-olds who's willing to work on the cheap and yet work 80 hours a week. And if he's a celebrity like Rick Warren uh, or Andy Stanley, that's all the better. The pastor is really important uh, in reaching our community. There's the programs. We have to have the, you know, the right programs. Preschool. Christian education, whatever. Uh, we have to have the right programs that make sense for our community. The place that we have to have a nice building. Uh, maybe people don't like it so traditional or don't like the hard wooden pew. So let's, let's build the type of facility that, that maybe the community would consider. And then the people. Our people have to be engaged in, in, in uh, reaching the lost and telling others about our church. Uh, uh, would you say that this is fair? That this is kind of the way we typically think today that if we're going to reach our community, it's going to come down to these types of things, the pastor, the programs, good facilities, and people being engaged. Is that fair? It's fascinating to me that, the ri that you notice that that line, in the, it's in the second half of the last 50 years that it trends up. In other words, it corresponds with the rise of the seeker movement. That at that time when we say we have to do any, we have to bend over backwards to pull people into our church, people are becoming even less interested in church at that time. The reality is church closings in America over the last 30 years, we've averaged 5,000 a year, that's 96 per week. It, it, it's really interesting. Um, I, as I get out, I, I, did, I was working with a church in the Mankato area um, last year, and I hadn't really driven around downtown Mankato, Mankato before. It's, if you've ever been there, there is a church in downtown, on every single block in downtown Mankato. Every single block, there's a church. I'm guessing one in ten is still a church. They were built as a church, but now nine out of ten are something else. Uh, uh, barbershop, uh, art gallery, uh, just the number of church closings in, in, in America. I, I want to show you a clip. Uh, uh, um, this is a, 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 <laughs> it's a clip about worship. Uh, um, and I want you to ask yourself, who do you think produced this and what were they trying to say? Like, there's a number of, of Facebook groups where Wells people comment on. Like, which Facebook group maybe produced this? What, what do you think that, who produced this and what were they trying to say about worship? play in that format, so you'll, you'll see my, my side videos. You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. 
It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contemporary. Young hip guy welcoming all with gravity and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone all the answers speaking softly to draw you in and then emphatically driving home my point long pause whispering repetition still pausing pained expression long prayer so that the worship leader can get back on stage church you will be lifted high and challenged to grow we call that motivation you call this sunday morning who do you think produced that and what do you think they were trying to say you, you might think this was produced by like a traditional, a traditional group of people who just want to push back against contemporary worship and, and, and critique it, right? Isn't that what you'd think? That was produced by Andy Stanley, uh, who I put up there as one of the, one of the uh, seeker-sensitive guys down at North Point Church. Part, North Point Ministries produced that prior to a 2010 conference. And it immediately, they got hammered for it by a bunch of evangelical non-denominational churches saying, you know, what are you saying? And what Annie Stanley was saying is, we've been doing this for 30 years, and it has not accomplished anything. We've kind of fallen to this programmed way of, if we just worship like this, and if we just offer this, people will come flooding in. And Stanley's assessment is, it, it hasn't happened. He'd say, what we have done is we've drawn in Christians from other churches. And it was interesting, Bill Hybels immediately wrote an article and he said, that's exactly right. Our growth in Chicago is not so much the lost, it's Christians from other churches who now come to our, come to our church. So the point being this, this, this programmed approach of there's seekers out there, and if we just stumble onto the right program or offer worship the right way, we'll get them to come. It's a lie in post-Christian America. You I, can't stop it. Okay, now it it's is working. coming to a town near you. I love, I love technology. 
so the collapse of American Christianity. I talked about the four eras. What's, what's lying underneath this in the last eight minutes? We're going to fly through this real quickly. It's stuff that uh, you've maybe heard me talk about uh, in other places. Um, widespread acceptance of religious pluralism po po that comes with postmodernism. If there's no such thing as absolute truth, then what religious pluralism is is, this, is the, uh, the belief that all religions are equally valid. Leslie Newbegin, an ang Anglican uh, theologian, wrote in the 80s um, as, as religious, or maybe it might have been the 70s, that religious pluralism was becoming common in Europe. He said, if this becomes like what we just, the way we talk, that Islam and Buddhism and Christianity are all equally valid, all of them are going to collapse because it means none of them are a, have any sort of real truth claim behind them. Um, this is what's happened in America as well. Widespread acceptance of religious pluralism, that we just say all religions are, are the same. As long as they work for you, that's great. Secular humanism becoming the basics for morality and ethics. America still does have a religion. That religion is secular humanism. Secular means apart from the church. Humanism is this optimistic view of humanity that would say within us we have the ability to live moral lives. Which is fascinating because it's partially correct. That's what the conscience is. And what's the conscience? It's the law of God written on our hearts. So here they think, well, apart from God, we can achieve morality because we have this voice inside of us. Yeah, that's God's voice. Uh, uh, but people in America don't think you need to go to church now to live a moral or purposeful or meaningful life. You have the disappearance of the nuclear family. Um, I don't want to blame boomers for everything, but they're the ones who kind of popularized divorce. When children are bouncing back and forth between two houses, it becomes hard for that child to be connected to any, any specific church. You also have the rise of single parenting, and single parents come to church at a rate that's about one-fifth of that of, of when there's two parents in the home. And I, I actually kind of get it, and I'm sympathetic. Uh, you know, imagine you're like a 32-year-old single mother of two kids, and they're like, you know, like my kids that aren't particularly, weren't particularly well-behaved in church, like you, you baptize them a second time if you thought that was permissible. Uh, um, and so she, she goes through the rigmarole of trying to get him dressed for church all by herself. She brings him into church. She's not getting anything out of it uh, because she, she's trying to keep her church in line. There's no dad there. And on top of that, in a lot of Wells churches, if you got noisy kids, what's eventually going to happen? Someone gives you the stink eye. No wonder that they're not coming. Well, they should. They should. But they're not. Um, the disappearance of the nuclear family. Loss of trust in the church and in church leaders, um, and again, not unjustifiable, whether it's the televangelists and the megachurches, uh, those preachers embezzling money over the last 40 years, or whether it's the Catholic church playing hide the pedophile for the last 70 years. Um, it used to be Americans would look at a pastor and think, yeah, they're, you know, I, I, they're definitely trustworthy. That is not the case anymore. Uh, there's where we rank. We rank above... Bankers, advertising executives, and politicians. No one trusts them. But it's only one in five Americans who think that clergy are trustworthy. Uh, technology changing how people get information, uh, local consumption, asynchronous consumption, local consumption means you don't have to go someplace to get what you want. Uh, if you're smart and you want to get your wife a nice gift for being gone for two days of, of, of conference, you don't have to like 
stop at the flower shop on the way home. You can just open up FTD on your app and order flowers and have them delivered to her. A local consumption. You don't have to go someplace to get the content you want. Asynchronous. You can get what you want whenever you want it. Uh, it's not like when I was a kid and to watch my favorite TV show, I had to sit in the living room on a certain day at a certain time. So we didn't even have a VCR yet. They hadn't been invented until I was like 10. So certain place, certain time. That's not how people watch TV today. Um, even like sports. I mean, I typically just, I just record the Packers game and then fast forward so I don't have to listen to Troy Aikman jibber jabber. Uh, um, I can watch the, watch the game in an hour. Uh, just think about what this means for churches. If we portray our churches primarily as a place to consume spiritual content, come to church and you'll hear a good spiritual content message. Come to church and you'll listen to good spiritual content uh, psalms and hymns. If that's the way we portray church, no one needs you. They can hear good preaching on YouTube. Spotify has five channels for psalms. Church has to be about more than just consuming spiritual content. It has to be about community, about the sacrament, uh, or we're in trouble because technology people means people can get information where they want uh, and when they want. Um, let's Lord Ganesha. Uh, in one word, summarize your view of Lord Ganesha. It's a Hindu god. Just one word. Fun? All right? Ha weird? Like, what is going on there? Is it feminine? Is it masculine? It's an elephant head, uh, a body kind of like mine, holding a rose, holding... Uh, what is going on there? It seems so odd. That is the most popular of all Hindu deities. If you go to India, there is not a household that does not have a picture or statue of Lord Ganesha. Uh, somewhere. It's, just, it's odd to us because it's unfamiliar to us. That's the case with Christianity and young Americans today. Uh, uh, Barna estimates that the average child under the age of 18 has in their lifetime been in church total on an average two times a year. And it's not for Christmas and Easter. It's for a wedding or a funeral. If that's the only time, let's say a 16-year-old has set foot in church for a wedding or a funeral, and now all of a sudden your, your son or your granddaughter or your 16-year-old invites this unchurched friend to your church, and they hear the pastor talking about eating a guy's body and drinking his blood. In 1950, the kid would have known something about the Lord's Supper. Today, the 16-year-old has never heard that before. Think of how strange that is. To, the, this has contributed to the challenge of pulling people into the church, the perceived oddness of Christian doctrine by those who have little exp exposure. Finally, the perceived hypocrisy of, uh, of Christians. Those 10 commitments, that comes from a humanist website, humanistcommitments.org. Um, so they would say, these are secular humanists, they're non-religious people. Uh, they would say, no, we don't have 10 commandments, but we do have 10 commitments, and they're all listed there. And what they would say is, we think we follow our 10 commitments better than you follow your 10 commandments. The perceived hypocrisy of Christians, we'll, touch, we'll come back to that a little bit later. So these are all these underlying factors that we see what's happened over the course of the 20th century. These are the factors that are underneath them. American Christianity has collapsed into postmodernism uh, and collapsed into a post-Christian nation, um, which means we, what we have to wrestle with, which we'll do the next time, is that it's also then collapsed 
what I think we rely on too much is that the church shopper. We have to stop assuming that the people in our community are interested in coming to our church. They are not. We'll pick it up there next time. So it's not just the, that, the, that the American church has collapsed. Um, along with that, what, what I think churches relied on in the second half of the 20th century uh, since that post-war revivalism was church shoppers. We just assumed that, that there's an inclination of Americans to want to go to church. Um, so I'm about to show you some data uh, um, of different groups of unchurched people. Uh, this comes from th three different study organizations. There's the Pew Research Group, there's Lifeway, and the, there's the Barna Organization. Those are the big three groups that kind of study uh, American religious culture. And they break the unchurched into six categories. And I assign names for each of them. So, so you have Sarah the Shopper, um, who's recently attended church um, she may even be currently attending, but just doesn't like it for some reason. Uh, but she, she knows that belonging to a church is, is important. Um, and so she's looking for the right fit, a church that's fit for her. Sarah the shopper. Uh, you got Daniel the disengaged. So he was formerly unchurched. He still considers himself Christian. He has no strong, real negative feelings about the church. Uh, he just maybe stopped going when he was in college and uh, never felt the need to start back up again. So he maybe goes Christmas and Easter, but that's about it. Um, he maybe does feel a little bit of guilt uh, um, if he's confronted of why he doesn't belong to a church because deep down inside he knows uh, uh, that engaging with the body of Christ is, is something that believers do. Uh, you got Teresa the turned off, so she had a bad experience with church. Um, she quit, and she hasn't really felt guilty about it. Uh, in fact, she kind of feels relief about not going to church. Uh, so this is the spiritual, not religious crowd in many cases. Um, so she, Sarah, maybe, or Teresa, maybe still prays. Um, she might even read her Bible. She just doesn't want to be part of any organized um, religion. You got Hunter, the happy humanist. Uh, might be atheist, may, may agnostic, he doesn't really care. Uh, he feels people can achieve morality and live meaningfully apart from religion. I talked about that earlier. And yet he doesn't have any strong animosity towards those who are Christian. He, he'd say, look, if this, is, if this is good for you, if it works for you, fantastic. I, I just don't need it. He's a happy humanist. That's different than Andrew the assailant. Uh, um, who is most likely always an atheist or an agnostic, uh, and he feels religion, particularly Christianity, does more harm than good. Uh, fascinating Barna study, that was done 2017, so it's already old, uh, found that one in three Americans under the age of 30 hold that view, that churches do more harm to our, our country, to our communities, than good, because we're self-righteous, we're misogynistic, we're prejudiced, whatever. Uh, so Andrew's the type of guy, when he talks about Christians, he's going to paint them in ugly terms, and he's going to be vocal about it. He's going to post on, uh, on his social media, whatever. Then you've got you say in the Unexposed. It was hard to find a U name. Uh, you say in the Unexposed, uh, almost no experience with church. Uh, few friends or family who are Christian, those don't talk about it. Uh, so the most knowledge he has of Christianity is what he's heard in the media, which of course is not great. Um, so these are the six groupings of unchurched Americans, which has become a greater percentage of Americans, of course, over the years. Uh, when you think about it, those, those top two, if you're talking about what you might call low-hanging fruit, uh, um, you would think, because they might e even still have a flicker of faith in, her, in their heart, that those two would be ones which would be fairly easy to pull in. 
Um, he's kind of neutral. Uh, the Holy Spirit's going to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do in a guy who's never heard the Christian message before. These, you have to kind of overcome other things. Um, in addition to sharing the gospel, you need to ask her, what, what was it that, that hurt you so badly in the, in, in the previous church? So these are a little, little harder nuts to crack. Breaking these down over the decades, in the 1980s, here's how these, you know, when I compile those three different organizations, rough percentages that they would assign to those groups. So they would say one in three Americans in 1980 who didn't have a church home wanted to. They were, they were looking for one. Another two out of five, they were, knew that they should be a part of a church, they just had, had, had getting, become disengaged. So there was that a lot of low-hanging fruit. By 2000, that shifts. Um, look at the, a lot of people quit shopping and they've now become the disengaged or maybe they've become uh, that, the, you know, the happy humanists. And by 2020, it is one in 20 unchurched Americans who are looking for a church. Just one, and that, of course we're talking about adults. Just one, one in 20. It's only 13% that are disengaged. So, you think about it, in, in 1980, it was about seven out of 10 people. We would think they shouldn't be that hard to pull into church. I mean, I was assigned to Charleston, South Carolina in 1997. Um, cultural Christianity was still a bigger, it was just shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, because that's the, that's the buckle of the Bible Belt. People kind of felt like, you know, I should really belong to a church. They just knocked on doors and, and say, hey, do you have a church home? And they'd say, well, no, why? <laughs> and then eventually invite them, invite them to our church. Um, now, you ask people that, and most of them say, why should I? Uh, um, so very little, what you might call low-hanging fruit, and two out of three uh, uh, unchurched Americans are going to be kind of difficult nuts to crack. Uh, by the way, this, this fast, I, I love presenting uh, in Wisconsin because this blows Wisconsinites' mind. Um, so Barnard des describes being high re religious as going to church once a month. Uh, um, that's okay, fine, that's their definition. It then ranks all the states uh, in, in the United States as, you know, who's highly religious, that the percentage of their population that goes to church once a month. Who here thinks, you know, Wisconsin, right, right in the, you know, the, the, heart of the, the heart of the heartland, ranks in the top third of the most religious states in America? Who thinks we rank in the middle third? Who thinks we rank in the bottom third? We're 44th. California, by that definition of percentage of citizens who go to church once a month, is more religious than Wisconsin. Um, the northern two-thirds of California are real different than the bottom, the bottom third. Uh, but ju just a new reality of, of what the average American is like. What does this mean uh, um, for what gets them in? I, the illustration I always use is like if you, if you tell people who just, they've had experience fishing and they just don't like being on a boat, they get nauseous, they whatever, they just, or they hate the smell of fish or they hate cleaning fish. They say, well, I have a better boat and I have nice equipment. It doesn't make a difference. They just don't like fishing. Um, if this is what we said, the collapse of the American church shopper has taken place. To, to try and say, well, but this is what our church can offer you. Here's what, it doesn't make a difference. Well, we've got a great pastor. 
19 out of 20 Americans don't think they need a pastor. Well, we've got great programs. They don't care that you offer Christian programs. By the way, this is something we have to come to grips with when it comes to the whole concept of using preschool or uh, 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 elementary schools for outreach. Most Americans, they to think that, well, they're going to join our church because we're going to teach our, our, their children about Jesus. That is simply not true. They are perfectly happy. I'm not, not in every case, there are outliers. But there are a lot of Americans who are purely happy to have a transactional relationship. Uh, I'll, put my, I'll give you money and put my kid in your preschool. You teach my kid ABCs and one, two, threes. Um, help them to become socialized when they go in, so they go into kindergarten. They're not dysfunctional. And if you want to teach them about Jesus, that's great. But they're not particularly excited about joining our church. Um, even with aggressive harvest strategies, it, it can be hard. Just Americans don't care about Christian programs anymore. They care about the safety of their kids. But Christian education? The place. Well, we've got you know, nice pews. We've we got a big screen at the front of our church. You know who has a bigger screen? Marcus Theaters. And they're not asking me to sing a hymn. They're, they're showing Top Gun Maverick. Uh, um, we've got you know, Starbucks coffee. You know who else has Starbucks coffee? Starbucks. <laughs> the pastor, the program, the place, if we are truly a post-Christian nation where Americans don't care about this type of stuff anymore, that leaves just one thing. It leaves the people. Uh, the people of God doing what I think Christ has, has called us to do. Which brings us to what I think is the best pass forward in a post-Christian nation. By the way, let me just say, I'm not saying that there's no room for what you might call corporate outreach, mass mailings, um, trying to get your name out there. There are still some church shoppers. I'm just saying in a post-Christian nation, that is increasingly going to reach fewer and fewer and fewer people. It's going to take authentic Christian presence. Uh, here's a study of the unchurched Americans' views of church as an institution. Um, so Barna would ask, why isn't this working? The church is full of hypocrites, and 72% of Americans would agree with that. Christian leaders are more concerned about the success of their church than loving God and people. 79% agree with that. Um, typically, it revolves around, they think, you just want me here because you're having trouble paying your bills. Um, so we need to grow so we can make budget, um, which maybe sometimes we have been guilty of thinking a little bit like that. Uh, my church uh, um, attending friends are, are live more morally than my unchurched friends do. Only 23% agree with that. Uh, this is fascinating, a study of millennials. That will, they'll just say, when I look at my friends who go to church every week and my friends who don't go to church at all, sexual behavior is not that different. What they do at the bar is not that different. Uh, um, so they're like, what's the point then exactly? Contrast that to unchurched Americans' view of Christians. So this is now a pivot. Now Barna isn't asking people about what do you think about the church as an institution or the, this group of people that we call Trinity Lutheran Church. What do you think about this individual? I have at least one close friend who is a Christian. Nine out of ten Americans say, yeah, I have a close friend who's Christian. I would enjoy an honest conversation about religious beliefs. Uh, um, four out of five agree with that. And when you talk about 18 to 29-year-olds, it jumps to nine out of ten. They're perfectly happy to discuss religious beliefs. 
In fact, they kind of want to. Uh, want to discuss uh, the, 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 those esoteric concepts of, uh, of what happens after we die. My Christian friends talk too much about their beliefs. Uh, um, less than one in three agree with that. Um, so it's it just a fascinating uh, um, dichotomy there. When uh, an unchurched person views like your congregation, he would say, oh, they're a hypocrite. But when he looks at you, he's, oh, oh but not Jim. Uh, he, he's, he's one of the good ones. So they kind of caricature us when they group us together in a congregation, but when they view us individually, they say, no, no, they're, they're okay. I'd be willing to have a religious conversation with them. Okay, that means that trying to connect people to our institution is not as good as trying to connect people to people, members to, to unchurched in their community. So what do we mean when we say authentic Christian presence? I said that I, I, I pull that phrase uh, from James Davis and Hunter's book. Let me just read a little bit of To Change the World. He says, I would suggest that a theology of faithful presence first calls Christians to attend to the people and places they experience directly. It is not that believers should be disconnected from people and places across the globe. Far from it. Christians are called to go into the world. So Hunter would be happy that Wells raised millions of dollars to start a, a worker training system in Vietnam. He'd say, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. He would say, don't let the fact that you gave $1,000 to that project now let you like, blind yourself to the fact that your next-door neighbor doesn't know who Jesus is. He goes on, but with that said, the call to faithful presence gives priority to what is right in front of us, the community, the neighborhood, and the city, and the people of which these are constituted. It is here through the joys, sufferings, hopes, disappointments, concerns, desires, and worries of the people with whom we are in long-term and close relation, family, neighbors, co-workers, and community, where we find our authenticity, interesting word, uh, we'll talk about that in a second, our authenticity as a body of believers. It is here where we learn forgiveness and humility, hospitality and charity, which right there he's addressing the whole concept of hypocrisy. Hunter would say, just admit that you're flawed. Just tell your unchurched next-door neighbor that you're struggling with some, with, with, with some temptation, uh, and that just eliminates the whole hypocrisy thing. Here where we learn forgiveness and humility, hospitality and charity, grow in patience and wisdom, and become clothed in compassion, gentleness, and joy. Pursuit identification, the author of life through sacrificial love, this is what God's faithful presence means. It is quality of commitment that is active, not passive. In other words, we plan to do this, to engage with our community. We just don't like sit back and hope people come to us. It is intentional, not accidental, same concept. It is covenantal, not contractual. We don't do this out of guilt. We do this because of God's grace of the new covenant. The quantity of commitment implied in faithful presence invariably imposes costs. Um, in other words, you engage with your community, uh, engage with the unbelievers in your community at your workplace, there's going to be risks to you. In this light, there is no true leadership without putting at risk one's time, wealth, reputation, and position. So trying to summarize uh, what I think he's saying. By the way, when am I, when am I going to here, President Sink? It's 1116. I would say if you're going to 10-2 again. Ten, 10 okay. Uh, summarizing, then, by authentic Christian presence. What do we mean by authentic? We have to let the community know Christians aren't perfect. 
Uh, uh, far from it. We have a lot of struggles. Uh, we're engaged in that beautiful struggle of, uh, of trying to re relive our baptism, drowning our old man every day. Uh, a simple example of this. All my neighbors know that I'm a pastor. Uh, um, and it wasn't too long ago uh, that one of my neighbors lives, I live on the side of a hill. We're cutting, we're cutting logs. I see him down there waving at each other. He comes and talks to me uh, about the fact that his marriage is falling apart and just telling me, you know, the, it's the type of stuff that happens in all of our marriages. And that's essentially what I told him. It's like everything which you, the stupid thing which you just said, you've said to your wife, I've said to my wife. I didn't feel the need to say, oh, I'm a pastor, so, uh, you know, I'm perfect. Look, I told him, if it wasn't for the grace of God in my marriage with Rebecca, in the Holy Spirit filling her with supernatural love so she can forgive me for being the buffoon that I am on a, on a regular basis, my marriage probably would have fallen apart, fallen apart a long time ago, which is hyperbolic. I don't know that my marriage would have fallen apart, but I was just trying to present to him the, the reality that Christians aren't perfect. We are engaged in this struggle. It's not hypocrisy. It's that we have my old Adam lives in me. Uh, we're engaged in this beautiful struggle that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, enables us to fight. Uh, um, just like St. Paul says, I want to do the good things, but I often can't do them. It's what I don't want to do, this is what I slip into. What a miserable human being I am. Uh, um, but thanks be to God, he's, he's the one who delivers me. Uh, so that's the authentic part of authentic Christian presence, that we're just transparent with our neighbors, with the people that God brings into our sphere of influence about how that we're far from perfect, um, that we're struggling, but it's, that it's Christ who gives us the strength and the motivation to struggle. What do we mean by Christians? We, we listen to Jesus talk to us through his word. We want to live for him. You can see that in the way we've, we, we, we have different priorities and values, which means that our neighbors need to see we have different priorities and values uh, than they do. That we share Christ's uh, truth, reflecting Christ's selfless and sacrificial love. Uh, just as St. Paul says, that I, I can live a completely different way because it's Christ who lives in me, giving me the power to do so. So that's authentic, that's Christian, and I think this is the big word to focus on, presence. Uh, present in God's family to receive what I need. Uh, um, that I'm connected with the body of Christ because it offer, it's not, I don't go to church for what I can give to God. I go to church for what he gives to me, for what the body of Christ gives to me. Uh, and the encouragement, and the admonition that, that I have fellow believers who can call me on my nonsense when I'm, when I'm acting nonsensical. Uh, we all need that Christian accountability. So you're present in God's family to receive what I need, but also present in God's world uh, to reflect his love uh, and to share, to share his uh, uh, grace. Um, fully engaged with the people. Again, I, the phrase I use is that God who's, those who God has brought into our sphere of influence. I uh, hear you have Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth, a preservative for a rotten world. You're the light of the world, illumination um, in a place that's full of darkness. Let your light shine in people's presence so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, when I came out in ministry, there's, there's a phrase that was going out called lifestyle evangelism. Um, we just talked about, you know, being nice to people, uh, shoveling, you know, sho you know cut, cut the lawn of your elderly neighbor, shovel the snow, whatever, um, let the people see your good deeds. Uh, 
when Jesus goes on to say, glorify your, your Father who is in heaven, no one can do that without hearing the gospel. So yes, we want to do good deeds so people, we gain an audience with them. But ultimately, our goal is to witness to them uh, so that they're able to glorify our Father, which only someone can do who's been brought to faith uh, through the gospel. So we combine those good deeds uh, with, with witnessing, salt and light. Uh, if you've ever taken uh, um, a college course on argumentation or debate or, or uh, uh, even just logic, uh, they'll talk about in, when you're making an argument, um, there's, there's three components to it. Uh, 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 like th three legs of a stool, the, the ethos, the pathos, and the logos. So logos means uh, the point you're making, the argument that you're trying to advance, it has to be logical. It has to have facts that support what you're trying to assert. Um, if you don't have that, the, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, so it needs to be logical. If you're trying to persuade someone, you not only need to be logical, you need pathos. Which don't think of emotion as like um, emotionalism, uh, uh, but just it's clear that you're passionate, that you care about uh, uh, the point that you're trying to make, that this is really, really important to you. Uh, um, ethos then is credibility. Uh, if you listen to professors who, who teach debate, they'll say ethos is the thing about you which makes people say, I'm willing to listen to this person. There's something about them that's a little different, and, and I need to find out exactly what it is. That's ethos, where we get our English word ethic from. Uh, I, I think the Christian church today, we still... We have logos in a greater form than they had even in the early Christian church. We have our doctrinal statements, uh, the Lutheran confessions. We have more explanation of theology than they did in the early Christian church. So we got the logos, pathos. I think we're just as fired up about Jesus Christ. It's the ethos. Um, can we recapture the ethos of the early Christian church so that just as the people of that time viewed Christians and said, there's something about them that's different. Uh, I, I want to listen to them, and then Christians can make their case. Um, can we recapture that today? Where did that ethos come from? It came from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, um, so in, on that Monday, Thursday evening, uh, Jesus said a new command. Oh, sorry, Pastor Isabel. Holy Thursday? Holy, Holy Thursday evening. Uh, a, new, a new command I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Everyone will know you're my disciples. The world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. In the Lutheran Confessions, we talk about the primary marks of the church being the, the pure preaching of the gospel and the correct use of the sacraments. When we say primary, what we mean by that is that they're unmistakable. Uh, um, if there's a church that's teaching God's words truthfully and is using baptism and the Lord's Supper correctly, I know the church is there, absolutely for certain, no doubts. When we say primary, we don't mean it's the one that most people will be able to recognize. There is no way someone who's unchurched can recognize that you're teaching right doctrine. And, oh, this is where I need to go, because uh, they understand the, the, the six-day creation. Jesus says, this is how people will know you're connected to me. It'll be by ethos that you have the supernatural love for one another. Uh, and the way Jesus demonstrated that uh, during his ministry, this is like a controversial chapter in Scripture. So we assume Joseph is dead at this time. 
which means by all cultural norms, Jesus is to assume the role of Joseph. He's to be there teaching his younger brothers how to be carpenters. He is to live in Mary's house and care for Mary unless she becomes remarried. And yet early in Mark's gospel, here comes Jesus and Joseph's half-brothers looking for him. And someone tells him, uh, your family is looking for you. And in verse 33, he says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That was a shockingly radical thing for Jesus to do because he's pushing off cultural norms of here's my responsibility as the oldest child, the oldest son. And he's saying the primary group in a believer's life is not even, has nothing to do with biology. It has to do with, with faith. He defines your church family as, as your primary group. The early church took that seriously. You look at how Paul writes about the body of believers, the terminology that he uses. And of course, uh, this isn't really ultimately Paul as author. This is the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. The Holy Spirit doesn't choose words carelessly. The number of times he refers to a, the belie believers in terms of family, brothers and sisters, he's clearly saying, this is how I want you to think of one another. That whatever you would do for a, your biological brother if he would go into the hospital, or what would you would do for your biological sister if she was in financial trouble, that's what you should be willing to do for your fellow believers. No hesitation. Uh, and this was reflected in the early Christian church when you read the book of Acts. Uh, just how well the church took care of one another. And the outside world noticed this. And it wasn't just that they took care of their fellow believers, uh, but they had this incredible love for outsiders too. Uh, Luke 16, well, to me it's one of the most interesting parables, the parable of the shrewd manager, uh, because Jesus is telling the story of this, this business manager, this steward, um, who's doing this dishonest things to kind of safeguard his future. We're like, what in the world are you trying to teach us here, Jesus? That, are you telling us that we should do dishonest things to, to be self-serving? And, and Jesus eventually explains. He's like, no, I'm just lamenting the fact that the people of the world know how to use their money so much better than believers do. That unbelievers will use the wealth that my, my father has given them to accomplish their priorities. I wish believers would do the same. And then he makes an application. He says, use your worldly wealth. The Greek word mammon kind of normally has a, you know, a negative connotation. Mammon, dirty mammon, filthy mammon. You can't serve God in mammon. Um, Jesus says, no, no, mammon can be just fine when you use it to gain friends. Why? Because you know as believers there's eternal dwellings that every man, woman, and child is going to spend eternity in one of two extremely different places. So Jesus is saying, use your worldly wealth to make friends so that you have the opportunity to share what I've given you, this, 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 this beautiful message of salvation. Uh, um, so again, this is Jesus talking in Luke. The apostles pick up on this, the writer of the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. The Greek word for hospitality follows Zaneus. 
Uh, um, so it's the exact opposite of xenophobia. Uh, xenophobia, phobia, fear. Xenias, the stranger, the outsider, the foreigner. So xenophobia, fear of strangers. Philoxenias, love of strangers. Love of outsiders. Love of people we don't know. Uh, the writer of this Hebrew says, love those people, those who you don't know. Uh, and it goes on to say, in doing so, some have, I think that's the right place, right? Is that where you've entertained angels? I, I think that's the writer of the Hebrews. So what happened in the early church is they kind of lived out this ethos that Jesus gave them. Love one another. Use your worldly wealth to make friends in the unbelieving world. What happened? Well, in 40 AD, there's about 1,000 Christians. In 350 AD, there's 34 million. During the second century, in one 40-year period, which is the same length of the beginning of the seeker movement, 1980 till now, when we just said the church is kind of just nosedived, in that same 40-year period, church grew, uh, the, the Christian church grew at the rate of 40% per decade. In three centuries, Christianity went from, I can't even read that percentage, to about half the Roman Empire. All this happened without any nice buildings, without any Christian programs for every demographic, without any advertising, without any celebrity pastors, without them thinking about felt needs. It happened because the early Christian church lived in authentic Christian presence. Uh, E.R. Dodds, I don't know if we have any Latin wonks here. If you're a, a Latin wonk, you know E.R. Dodds. He's probably one of the five best Latin scholars of the last century. He also was an expert in Greek. Uh, he was born into a Presbyterian family. His, fam uh, his father died very young, um, so he kind of didn't have a whole lot of interest in the church. Um, but he, he, what he did become was a, one of the greatest classic scholars. He read Latin and Greek histories, particularly of the early Christian church. And he says, when you read the history of what happened, um, you, can come to, you can explain the explosion of the early Christian church by three things. So this is an unbeliever's perspective. He would say, first, there's the beauty and the uniqueness of the gospel. That even as an unbeliever, he would say, you know, all, all other religions, they have a god or gods who just demand that you sacrifice for them. And Christianity has this God who says, no, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. Just the beauty of, of the, and the uniqueness of the, of the gospel. No other religion was like that. He also, I had never, never uh, thought about this till I read E.R. Dodds, but he just, he would write about, you know, think of how exhausting it was if you believed in the Roman pantheon. So you've got these 40 different gods and you have to please them all and they're in conflict with one another. It's just exhausting. So he just said, monotheism was simpler. And so that was, that was the appeal. Well, okay, uh, perhaps. But he thought the big thing was the genuine generosity and sincerity of love among Christians. That it wasn't those first three doors, it was the people engaging with those who God had brought into their life. He's like, because Christians did that actively, that's what gave this ethos to the early Christian church. It gave them the opportunity. None of, being nice converts no one. But it can win you the opportunities to share the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit does what only he, he can do. Um, so when you look at um, just what, what you read in, in the, uh, the early Christian church, so Clement, uh, he would have been familiar with at least St. John, Bishop of Rome, um, even before, before the end of the first century A.D., he writes about Christians, he impoverishes himself out of love so that the Christian is certain he may never overlook a brother in need. There's that phrase, brother. 
especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain, and if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own property, he does not complain. He said, Christians, they're just, they see another Christian in need, they'll make any sacrifice to take care of him. I talk about the rich. The rich Christians holds possessions and gold and silver and houses and gifts of God. There were some uh, rich Christians in Rome asking Clement, should we just sell everything? Uh, and he said, no, manage it. Um, from them to minister to the, to the salvation of men for God the giver and knows that he possesses them for his brother's sake rather than his own. So he says, keep your wealth, but use it uh, to support Christian causes and to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Lucian of Samosata, this is fascinating. So this is, we're only talking 165 AD. Uh, so not that long after the time of apostles. Lucio was an unbeliever. He's a Syrian satirist. Uh, so he critiques Christianity. Uh, and he wrote this, this uh, it's supposed to be a comedy, uh, called The Death of uh, Peregrinus, in which he critiques Christians this way. He says, these poor fools have persuaded themselves above all that they will live forever, from which it follows that they fear not death, and many of them willingly undergo imprisonment. Uh, Lucian is also the guy, he'd write about how uh, he would see Christians being executed like in the Colosseum, and that they were joyful, singing hymns, as they're being about to be fed to lions. And he says it's because they're idiots because they think they're going to live forever, these, these, these bozos. Moreover, their first lawgiver, that crucified sophist, Jesus, taught them that they are all brothers of one another. So even unbelievers knew how Christians thought of one another. We're family. So they despise all things equally and regard them as common property. Everything I own belongs to you. Everything you own belongs to me. Accordingly, if any quack or trickster who can press his advantage comes among them, he can acquire great wealth in a short time by imposing on these simple-minded people. So Lucius is saying, you know, if you want to you know, run a scam, just join a Christian church because they'll give you the shirt off their back. Um, and yet, I mean, just how much he gets, he gets right. Um, they think that they'll live forever. They think that they're all brothers. He knew what Christians believe. Tertullian, uh, great, one of the great church fathers, around 200 AD, we call ourselves brothers, so we who are united in mind and soul have no t hesitation about sharing everything we have. Everything is in common to us except our wives which was completely opposite of Roman culture. There's a different uh, Roman hi historian who wrote, Christians are stingy with their beds, but promiscuous with their food. We Romans are the exact opposite. In other words, a Roman was happy to share his wife. Open marriages, that, that, was, that was fine. But my money is my money, and my food is my food, especially if there's a famine going on. Christians were the exact opposite. Emperor Julian, the apostate. So uh, this is a descendant of Constantine. Um, so uh, lives in 362 AD. Um, if you know your Roman history, you know the Roman Empire is unraveling, and he wants to hold it together, and he thinks to do that, uh, he needs to unite the empire around one religion, kind of like Eisenhower. We need to unite the empire around one religion, and that's going to be emperor worship. So he tries to reinstitute it. He gives up 
in 14 months. He sends the letters out to his priests and he just says, we're never going to reinstitute institute worship. We can't possibly get rid of Christians. And here's the reason. So these impious Galileans, Christians, not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Uh, it also helped that at this time there was a plague that broke out in parts of the empire. Um, plagues typically, it's kind of like during COVID, you know, New York was like the epicenter. Um, cities were the, the worst hit. Romans typically left the city. They fled, wealthy Romans fled to the countryside. They left their sick relatives behind. You know, good luck, we'll see you in a year uh, when, this, when COVID blows over. Christians stayed behind in the cities and set up hospitals. And they took care of their, Christian, their, their fellow Christians, and they took care of pagan Romans as well. Uh, they feed their own poor, but ours also. Welcoming them into their agape feasts, they attract them as children are attracted to case, eat cakes. You just hear the scorn in his voice, the sarcasm. These hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. And by a display of false compassion, it's, it's not even logical. He says they're, they're devoted to charity, but it's all false compassion. Uh, they've established and given efforts to this, this per, given effect to their pernicious efforts. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the indigent, the, the poor, the sick. Such practice is common among them, not rare. This is just what we note all Christians do. It is common among them, and it causes contempt for the Roman gods. Because it was exact opposite. In, in, in the Roman Empire, they're like, why would I want to follow Zeus when I can follow Christ? And this is what Christians are like. Um, the ethos of, of the early Christian church. Uh, another great book, Rodney Stark, uh, The Rise of Christianity. He said, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman world by providing new kinds of social relationships to cope with many urgent problems. The cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. The cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered immediate basis for attachment. The cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for, for social solidarity. And the cities faced with uh, uh, epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing uh, uh, services. Uh, and we hear the word cities there, and we think, well, this, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear uh, people say, well, this means we have to get to the big cities. Uh, remember, like, when they, uh, people say Paul went to the big city. Yeah, Paul went to Corinth. Corinth's size at that time was about the same as Metropolitan Appleton. So cities today, your towns, if you have four, four or 5,000 people, that's what the early Christian church was thinking of as, as cities. So we just need to realize that America, we've entered into a different time. Um, and we have to think about how we do ministry probably a little differently. Um, this has happened throughout the, the arc of Christian history. I think of society at the time of David. Um, faith was at the center uh, of, of the nation of Israel. They were mono-religious. Um, King David would, would cut down the high places. There was only, only the worship of, of, of the Lord. Uh, temple and synagogue, that was a weekly ritual. Um, temple, at least once a year, uh, but synagogues, the synagogue, the Levitical cities and their synagogues uh, uh, um, on a weekly basis. And then there was commonly held ethics and values, the Judeo, we call it sometimes the Judeo-Christian ethic. Compare that to first century AD, faith at the margins. Uh, uh, faith wasn't particularly important to the Roman Empire. There was religious pluralism. You could worship whatever God you wanted. It's, uh, that's why Judaism was a protected religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity not so much until more like Constantine's time. 
Uh, temple visits were rare and occasional. If you live first century uh, Roman citizen, let's say you're living in Ephesus, the only time you'd go to a temple is for if you needed something. Uh, um, maybe a marriage, maybe a funeral. Um, you didn't go to temple like on a regular cycle. Widely divergent ethics and values. There were Romans who did the whole uh, open marriage thing, but there was monogamy as well, just widely different. Uh, 1960 America, which one is, we, are we more like? In 1960. Don't, uh, we're a little more like society at the time of David, right? Which one are we more like now? The society in first century A.D. Rome. Uh, um, which means that the same way that early church approached reaching the, their, reaching the lost with the gospel is probably something that we want to adopt, this, this concept of authentic Christian presence. Uh, I think this is the 20th century paradigm, which I think we're still hanging on to. Um, it's subconscious. Uh, when Kurtnitz talks about culture tomorrow, I don't want to give away too much, but he'll talk about how it could be sub, these subconscious thought habits that we have. Um, the thought was we need to get our church out into our community. So penetrate the community, tell them about our church, do mass mailings, do today, social media posts, do billboards, do, put, your, put it in the newspaper, put it in the yellow pages when there was such a thing. Um, get our name into our community, and if people know that we're a good church in our community, the people of our community will wander and will get some of the neighbors. That, I think that's gone. The people don't care what resources your church offers, what programs your church has, because Americans, again, only one in 20 unchurched Americans are even considered joining a church. Um, so what is it gonna take in the 21st century? It's gonna take a greater emphasis on the church building up members, discipling, discipling members, and then having our members be empowered to go into, into their communities, to intentionalize the time that needs to be spent uh, practicing hospitality with the people that God brings into their life. Uh, in the final part of this uh, uh, um, presentation, I'll just lay something out there for you to think about. Do you know the names of the people who live on your street and what's going on in their lives? And if not, why? This, I think, is the best, the, the best path forward. Um, what's this gonna take, um, this pivot, from an emphasis on corporate outreach, let's advertise our church to the community and tell our community what we all offer, to more authentic Christian presence, personal witnessing, whatever you wanna call it, what's it gonna take? I think the first thing it's gonna take is a greater focus on what happens when someone is in our church. We've put so much emphasis on, on all those doors. Well, we said most of them aren't, aren't important anymore. We got the people left. Uh, so what happens once they're in? Uh, how do we approach discipling them? Uh, um, discipleship, I, I, every district is known for different things. I really commend your, uh, the Northern Wisconsin District's uh, Commission on Discipleship. Uh, this is something that they're, that they're passionate about. Uh, a real simple way of thinking of discipleship is, a, is movement along two spectrums. Um, in 2 Peter, uh, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you move along the spectrum that you know more and more of God's word and you have the ability to rightly apply it. That's the first part of the discipleship. 
The second part, Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That you grow in your loving service of God and neighbor. Things like stewardship of time, stewardship of finances, a willingness to witness, a willingness to, uh, something that your district stresses, have parents be involved uh, in their children's spiritual instruction. That they grow in their ability to do that. They don't look to hand that off to the church or to the school, but they take the primary responsibility to do that. That's how I view discipleship, is moving along those two spectrums, which of course means we're growing deeper in our relationship with, with Jesus Christ as, as well. How exactly do we do that? Um, I mean, you think of how we've approached spiritual growth. It's preaching, where we get, I mean, now Wells is down to about 32% of its members on a given week uh, post-COVID. We have the Lord's Supper. We have Bible class, which historically has been about 10% of Wells members at most on, on any given week. Uh, another great book, uh, Tom Rainier's High Expectations. Um, he did a study and he said the churches that, that seem to be thriving in this post-Christian era aren't ones that say, you know, here's what you need to do to be a good member. Show up once in a while and you know, toss 2% of your income uh, into the plate. They have high expectations for members' involvement, to be engaged in things like small groups, uh, to be trained to do various discipleship activities. Uh, um, even in leadership expectations, it'll just be said, uh, uh, unless you're in Bible study, I, I think this should be a rule in our church. If you're not in, in weekly Bible study, you can't be on church council, you can't be on the board of elders, can't even be on the trustees. Uh, 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 um, just higher expectations. Um, we could spend a whole presentation. How do we go about increasing discipleship efforts? It's going to vary largely from church to church, but I think this is the first, the first step of this authentic Christian presence. How do we do better? Go beyond just, I'm going to see this person 60% of the time on Sunday morning, so that they have more regular contact with uh, God's words, that the Holy Spirit can grow them in a willingness to live in this authentic Christian presence that we're talking about. So that's step one. Step two, and this is the, the last thing that we'll, we'll talk about before we break, uh, I think we need a, a well-articulated theology of presence and hospitality. Uh, I already talked about hospitality. Hospitality, a, you know, a willingness to uh, 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 break bread with people, to use your money, to spend time with people, playing the long game of, of building a relationship with them. A theology of presence, um, I don't know if we talk about this much, uh, um, but that's realizing that if you live someplace, it's, it's for a reason other than that's the house you can afford. Uh, we need to change the way we think about what it means to be involved in evangelism. So this is a survey, a uh, pulse survey that I did a couple of years ago of about, it's about a thousand Wells members. Uh, and it said, are you involved in your congregation evangelism's efforts? So the only people who take pulse surveys are pretty, pretty active members. And 71% said yes. Then a follow-up question is, in the past 12 months, with how many people did you attempt to share your faith in, uh, to share your faith or in Christ or invite to church? 83%, zero. So that, I mean, just, you, th you think of, those numbers don't match up. 71% are saying we're involved in evangelism efforts, but 83% said, yeah, but I haven't talked to anybody about Jesus or tried to invite them to church. One to two, 13%. Um, so 3 to 10, 4%, 10 plus, nobody. 1,000 Wells members, nobody. Um, the follow-up question is then, when you say that you're involved in your evangelism efforts, what do you mean? Um, and it's give offerings to support missions. I pray for the efforts. I support the preschool. 
I help label mass mailings. We have to talk smartly about these things. Jesus said, where's the wise and the faithful manager? Talk wisely about these things. If you've put labels on your church's Christmas mailing, you haven't done evangelism. You've done labeling. And that's good. I praise God that you were willing to sacrifice the time to put labels on your church's mass mailing. That is not the same thing as getting to know all your neighbors who don't have a church home and inviting them to the, to the Christmas Eve service. Uh, a theology of Christian presence. In, in Acts 17, whoop, Scripture says, From one man God made every nation of mankind to live over the entire face of the earth. He determined the appointed times and the boundaries where they would live. He did this so that they would seek God and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one. So it says that he, pointed, he points the times and boundaries where mankind would live. And that the reason for that is he has this desire that people uh, uh, find him. Um, so you can kind of see the, the pinpoint there. Let's zoom in a little bit more. Zoom in a little bit more. You can probably read 414 Mandan. There it is, 414 Mandan. That's the house I bought uh, when I accepted the call to um, become the director of congregational services. And I moved to, uh, from Charleston to, uh, to Waukesha. Why did I buy that house? Uh, or why did God put me in that house? You could say, well, it was the house that we could afford. Um, or it was the house that had the features that we wanted, which it, it didn't. There was no, <laughs> the housing market was tight. There was a fixer-upper. Uh, um, but ultimately, what, what that passage from Acts said is that the reason God put me in that house is because of the people who live there. I know this is on video, so I'm going to be careful how I talk in case my neighbors would somehow see this. And the person who lives there, and the person who lives there, and the person who lives there, my neighbors knew, know two things about me. They know that I'm a pastor, and they know that if they want to come over um, and sit on my back porch, I will make them a brandy old-fashioned the size of their head. It's maybe not good that those two things are linked together. Uh, uh, um, but it's allowed me to have conversations. And I am not an extroverted guy. The initial conversations with these people were all through my wife or, 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 or just me being out in a... But we intentionalize getting into these people's lives. There's, there's two houses there. Um, those are uh, uh, one's for sale when someone just moved in. So I don't know who lives there but I will. This is authentic Christian presence uh, um, where we just take the opportunities that God has given us to, to meet the people that he's plopped right down next to us and find out where they're at in their spiritual lives and, and share the hope uh, that we have. Um, so we need to articulate this, to pivot on the way we think about of evangelism from being, mass, I'm, not, I'm not against mass mailings or Facebook ads, but this authentic theology of presence. Members, get to know who your neighbors are and get to know what's going on in their life. And that's going to take time. It's going to cost money. It's worth it. Um, and that I think this is what Christ has called us to do. That is a good time to break. Good afternoon, brothers. So, so continuing on um, what it would take uh, to better achieve what we call this authentic Christian pr presence, more personal witnessing among us. So the first thing was just an intense uh, uh, focus on discipleship, um, what we can do to better build up our members. The second thing is this theology of, 
of presence and hospitality that we just think of who it is that that's moved in next door to us doesn't make a difference uh, um, what their race is it doesn't make a difference what their sexual orientation is I don't care who they voted for in the last election um, the Lord put me next to them and I'm gonna try and befriend them uh, so that over time this is I want to stress a long game it's not like the first time you have them over um, you now ask them if you're to die tonight where you know do you know where you'd be not that that's necessarily wrong it might the opportunity might come up but that you're willing to cultivate a relationship with these people over time uh, with with hospitality um, earlier I played a video uh, from from uh, um, Life Church that was just kind of critical uh, of using that programmatic type of approach to uh, uh, whether it was wor worship or different types of church programs to try and reach the lost. It's interesting, the evangelicals have taken a hard pivot on how they're trying to, to reach the uh, unchurched and the lost in America right now, and it is all about this. Um, hospitality and, and evangelism. Um, I wanna share just a, about a six minute clip of different evangelicals talking about how they're trying to approach evangelism in their church. We're gonna have the same thing. Here we go. Europe got secular before Canada and Australia got secular before America. In other words, it does seem to be a kind of rolling um, uh, dynamic going on there. And so I know I learned a lot about how to do evangelism in a place like New York by listening to British speakers and preachers who had administered in London earlier. And so, uh, question, do you have any, since you're, in a sense, you're a man who's coming from the future, uh, through the time, through the time portal, you know, stepping out of your TARDIS, and you're about to say to us, uh, here are some lessons maybe you could be learning here that I have learned in a pretty secular city for doing evangelism. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, for a long time, London churches um, thought if you just get the events in the calendar, so three times a year you run a course or whatever, you have some guest events and guest services running to that, actually you'll get a stream of people that come on the, uh, the courses. We, we run Christian Explored, go through Mark's Gospel, they come to faith. What we're finding now with the culture hardening, that when it, when it comes to running an event, let me do a visual aid because it's early morning, it used to be your friend comes along, they hear the talk and they drop themselves into the course. They just, they just make their own way there. Now, if you bring your friend along at Christmas, or, or whatever time of year, Christmas is the easiest ask, you bring them along, you give them to the speaker for 25 minutes as he speaks. The moment he finishes, you've got to take your friend back and say, do you want to have a look at, I mean, Becky's material uh, uh, uncovering the life of Jesus has been brilliant in terms of trying to help people do this and say, do you want to look at the Bible with me? And we're at the point now where we're almost saying, if you're running events without the church family engaging with that one-to-one -one work with their friends, because the culture's hardening, the events become less and less effective in terms of seeing people on Christianity Explored or Alpha or whatever it is. We're finding it much harder to get people on courses, which has been our strategy, without the personal work happening. Happening. So, and I think the reason for that is 
What Christians believe is becoming more and more unpleasant to the culture. We believe Jesus is the only way to God. We believe there is a judgment to come. We believe there is a place called hell, and that's why Christ had to die. And therefore, it, you've got to get people who are good at the one-to-one -one stuff or the one-to-two stuff articulating that before their friends will find their way onto courses. So I think that's the change. You know, it's the pen illustration. They used to come and drop themselves on. I mean, when Billy Graham came to Haringey 1954-55, uh, 40,000 people went forward at Haringey, but 90% of them were churchgoers. Yeah, right. Now, uh, 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 we're so much further away, there needs to be far more relational stuff and the ability to say, okay, let's look at the Bible together, personally, privately, and then they'll find their way onto a course uh, or, or whatever it is and into church life. So I think it's the mobilization of the church family in terms of one-to-one, -one, which is huge. And the problem with that is people think it's the pastor's job to do that one-to-one -one stuff, one-to-two stuff. Right. I think a way to think about evangelism, again, is to go back to um, the first century, second century, as we watched the church in the margins, that the early church was known for their hospitality. Uh, like they were known for greeting everyone. So we want to be a people that that show kindness, that, that operate in such a way that everyone who stands in front of us feels like they're seen and, and understood as a human being. So, so that means uh, everyone from the grocery stores that we shop at, to the places we get our coffee, to the people that fix our cars, to our coworkers, to our friends, to the, like we wanna greet everyone we see. We wanna see them as human beings made in the image of God. And, and then we wanna make dinner a priority, like dinner for the Christian should be that place where we welcome outsiders, where, where we're serious about gathering and knowing one another deeply, uh, and then spiritual conversations giving birth in that space uh, of calling people to consider the beauty of Jesus Christ and, and serving at the dinner table becomes this kind of picture uh, of another reality than the one that most people are living. And so, man, we want to greet all of those we see. We want to make dinner a priority. We want to show hospitality to the outsider in particular. So we want to grow our circles to... One of the angles I've been thinking through evangelism lately has been uh, through the lens of hospitality. So actually at our church, we have a lot of groups who, you know, kind of community groups that meet during the week. And one of the things we're currently trying right now is actually uh, taking one week where we kind of shut down the normal groups and we're, we're kind of training everyone in the groups to uh, that, that week that we don't actually have community, that they would actually invite over uh, a friend, someone they know that we actually spent some time praying the week before, who's the person that God will put on your heart. So when we think about hospitality uh, and extending the hospitality of God, like actually creating a welcoming space to receive the life of the other and being intentional in uh, making that space meaningful, whether that's your home or whether that's taking someone out to coffee or whatever that is. And uh, the act of actually listening and getting to know their lives and having some uh, pointed questions, not supposed to put them on the spot, but to really ask them deeply, getting to know some of the ways that they think about the world and understand the world. And we found, I think there's an immense hunger today where people are often isolated and lonely or have conversations that can be very superficial and shallow. And it's really kind of strange to get invited in by someone to share some of the deepest things about your own life, your story, the way that you understand the world. It's 
So I could go to a dinner party at one woman's house and it's a beautiful table that is set and we have a really great time. There's been great care given to how the meal is presented and it could be entertaining, but I could go to another woman's house and have basically the same meal and it would be hospitality. You can't always tell them apart on the surface because they have to do with our motive. Hospitality is demonstrated when we are asking questions about how to make ourselves lower than others who are there, when we're thinking about how to draw people into conversation and we're thinking about relationships instead of focusing all of our efforts on creating the perfect environment to make maybe ourselves look good or make ourselves feel like we have measured up to whatever standards been put out there on Pinterest for us. We have nothing to learn from them theologically, but, but just I find it interesting that all these churches are leaning into hospitality, that you're just recognizing what we talked about in these first two sections. That with America becoming a post-Christian culture, the one gentleman, Rico Teich, referred to as a hardening, uh, um, it's going to take us engaging with our neighbors and taking, investing the time uh, to get to know them, showing them the respect of our time, uh, um, so that we then have those opportunities to be a Christian witness. And I think we can do it a lot better than the evangelicals can for moments, that, for reasons I'll get into in, in just a moment. Um, just a shameless plug for something coming out of Congregational Services, uh, the Wells Commission on Evangelism. Uh, director uh, Eric Recker uh, is de developing um, a training program for congregations called Entertaining Angels, um, just about how to practice hospitality evangelism. It just helps members think things through. How do I make this systematic that we're going to set aside, let's say, two days out of the month uh, to have people from our street over for dinner? Uh, we're going to play the long game in doing this, helping people understand uh, it doesn't have to be about can I, can, you know, how great does our house look? You Come over to my house at any time. It doesn't look, look all that great. Uh, not that great a cook. Uh, um, and that's fine. Uh, it's more about uh, me, to, us to spending time to develop relationships with people. So we said that's the second thing for this uh, uh, authentic Christian presence, a well-articulated theology of presence that God puts us where we live for a specific reason. It has to do with the people who are around us. Um, it's another way of talking about the doctrine of the vocation and then also uh, um, a theology of hospitality. Uh, the third thing we need is, um, we hear a lot of talk about apologetics, uh, just training about how to talk about the truth of God's word in a way that's perceived as loving, that doesn't immediately put the person's, the person's guard up. Um, it, can, it can be a training on, on what not to talk about first. Um, if I would invite a, 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 the, the, person, the couple that I mentioned uh, with the life is, uh, uh, um, or Black Lives Matter, science is science, love is love, I'm not going to bring up politics for a long, long time, even though I know how they vote. Uh, I'm just not going to bring that up. Uh, I want to have, first of all, I want them eventually to, to understand my, my views of Jesus Christ. Another common example, uh, um, how, you know, how do you talk to, to people wrestling with homosexuality or, or, or obviously the trans movement, the LBGTQ movement is huge. Uh, in my early years in Charleston, South Carolina, I would just go straight to Leviticus and I would show the, show the Bible passages where homosexuality is put right next to uh, child sacrifice. And I would just kind of say, this is, this is how God thinks about it. And that immediately never had a chance to have a discussion with those people again. I was sharing the truth of God's word. I just don't know that I was rightly defining, dividing law and gospel at that point. 
um, have just pivoted over the years, uh, and now I still have opportunities if, I, if I'm witnessing with someone uh, who's wrestling with one of those issues. I don't do it in terms of what does Leviticus say. I do it in terms of uh, creator and creation. The illustration that, that I used once when I saw a guy who, uh, I was talking to a guy who, who plays guitar, and, I, and he, he, was, he was homosexual. And they asked me what I thought about it. And I said, well, let me, let me ask you this. Could you use that guitar to rake the leaves? Uh, and he's like, right, well, why would I do that? I'm like, never mind, why could you? And it's like, yeah, I suppose. You know, you got the, the big body and the long handle. You could rake leaves. I'm like, what would happen to the guitar? It's like, well, it wouldn't do the job as well, and eventually you'd ruin the guitar. I'm like, exactly. Because the person who designed that guitar designed it to make music, not to rake leaves. And so when you ask me about homosexuality, the real question is, are we created by a God or aren't we? And if we are, did he design us to function a certain way? And if we did, then our thriving, our well-being is, is going to be tied to us living in alignment with how he designed us to live. And so I, it's just a different way. I'm ultimately getting to the same point, but hopefully in a way that is a little gentler. Um, so apologetics. I know that some of you guys have written uh, um, programs about that, how to witness in a winsome way. Uh, um, uh, uh, Dr. Paustian just published something um, in the Commission on Evangelism for how to do that. If you have any resources like that, send those to Eric Recker. He'd love to take a look because I think this is a big thing. Uh, someone asked me to, to, if there's any books I would recommend. Uh, Eric Kukul's, I, I, I'm pronouncing his last name wrong. Cool, maybe? Eric Cool. It's spelled Kukul, but I think it's just pronounced cool. Uh, um, his book, Tactics, is just fantastic. It's just about as you're developing a relation with someone, what's the right tactic to kind of lay something before them to chew on? He calls it putting a pebble in their shoe, uh, which isn't painful, but it's uncomfortable. Eventually, you want to deal with it. Um, just conversations you can have which make people not pained, but they're going to think about it, and they're eventually going to want to have a deeper discussion with you. But I think this is the third thing. We need to, we need to learn how to talk better. Uh, it just, this does not require deep theological training. Uh, I think any Wells person who's, who's gone through confirmation class uh, has the ability to, to, to do this. Uh, the final thing that we need uh, um, here's a, uh, to accomplish this authentic Christian presence, I'm going to let uh, Pastor Dave Rosen out of Leesburg, Florida. He presented at the leadership conference. Maybe many of you have seen it. I think it's been, this video has been viewed like 250,000 times, which in the wells is weird. Uh, um, but this is just a 60-second clip. A man told me it was time for us to start planning for the Christmas booth downtown. I said, what in the world is that? So we hand out candy and coupons for Bibles. And if they come to church, we'll give them a free Bible. I said, how many have you given away? None. How many people are here because you do that? None. In all the years, how many? None. I said, well, I don't want to do that then. I said, how about we just try one year, instead of spending time on that, the two of us, just the two of us, try to go find one person and invite them to come. If one does, we win. We found more than one. And as the Lord brought people in, people said, Pastor, this is great. We need to start some groups. I said, okay. What were you thinking? I said, well, you can do that in the community you live in. And I started to think, I think you just want to do that so that you can get to, together with people you already know. Because it's a lot more comfortable than having to meet your neighbors. 
Fourth thing we need is we need leadership that's willing to honestly assess ministry tactics. Uh, sometimes people will say, John Heine, he gets consumed with the numbers. I honestly don't care about the numbers of our synod. Uh, whether we're growing, whether we're declining, this is up to the Holy Spirit. Where I am interested in numbers is, is, is a metric for, is what I'm doing, is it, is it good stewardship? And, and that's exa exactly what Dave Rosenau was doing there. He's saying, You've, we've done this Christmas thing for years, and we've never had anybody show up in our church. It is poor stewardship. Just the numbers would say it's poor stewardship to keep this going. Let's, let's, try, let's try something else. The other thing, leadership that keeps people focused on the mission. So as the, his church grew dramatically, um, he had people saying, well, let's start up whatever type of group you want to start, ladies group, men's group. And he would say, why would we do that? Just start groups in your neighborhoods. Get together with the people on your block. That's your group. So that you then have the opportunity to, to, to try and witness to them and pull them into the church. So this is the fourth thing that's going to come down to leadership. Uh, leadership that's willing to honestly assess ministry tactics and leadership that keeps people focused on the mission. So what are the four things that this is going to take? Focus on discipling our people, building our people up um, with, with the means of grace, so that they have the conviction uh, that this is what God has called them to do. It's going to take a well-articulated theology of, of hospitality uh, and a theology of presence, that you live where you do for a reason. It had nothing to do with it being the house you can afford, that the Spirit puts you there knowing there's people, that he's now brought you into the sphere of your influence. Uh, it's going to take, what was the third thing? Oh, <laughs> training and, and how, to how to talk winsomely about Jesus Christ, just greater focus on apologetics, how to start a spiritual conversation uh, and, uh, uh, with, with our neighbors, and then finally leadership, keeping people focused on, uh, on, this, on this mission. So wrapping it all up, um, you said we had about 2.10, is that correct? So I'm hoping to wrap it up pretty quick. So we have a little time for, qu for questions and answers. Uh, um, I work with a lot of churches that will, will, will say, you know, Pastor John, what do, you know, <laughs> they're looking for a silver bullet. We, we want to, you know, we know that we're facing some challenges. We want to reach our community better. What, what is the silver bullet? Um, and there, there isn't one. Uh, um, again, this is being a numbers guy, kind of a data guy, I can kind of illustrate it. Uh, um, let me just look at a couple of different churches real quick. Intentionally chose ones that I've worked, that I know, that I'm familiar with. I've talked to their leadership, familiar with what they do. Uh, very different sizes. Here's one from your district. You a lot of massive churches with your. That's a behemoth type of church. Uh, I'll tell you why I chose membership from a couple of years ago in a second. Uh, so St. Mark's and the Pier, behemoth-sized church. Faith in Sharps. Oh, and, and what you would say is a more contemporary, outside the box in their approach to ministry. Uh, Faith in Sharpsburg, very traditional, uh, to the point of, of you could, um, some would say, even high church in their approach. Uh, that is a large church by, by well standards, uh, 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 505. St. Mark and Leesburg, I just talked about it, their 2015 membership, 240. Boy, you want to talk about a church? These, these churches, I mean, they have programs. They can offer programs. They're big churches, so you got a school here and other things. Uh, you have a preschool here. Uh, St. Mark's and Leesburg, nothing. Uh, um, worship and Bible class, that's it. That is, that is all they do in the way of, of ministry efforts. A church of 240. Peace in Aiken, uh, a mission that started as in, in a storefront uh, in the middle of, uh, of Aiken, South Carolina. Pastor John Boardman there. Kind of a, kind of a, you know, a blend of, of traditional contemporary. Uh, you want to talk about just style, very different. Size, very different. 
Um, so then you look at the, how the Lord has blessed their efforts in the last five years. Almost identical. So you say, what's the silver bullet? Well, we need to become more contemporary. Apparently not. We need to be more traditional. Apparently not. We need to start all sorts of groups. Apparently not. We can't reach the lost unless we're a large church. Apparently not. Um, we can't, we're, a, we're too big a church to reach the lost. You need to be smaller and more intimate. Apparently not. I want to be real careful when I, when I bring this up, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you just do the right things, um, it's going to result in statistical or spiritual growth. All growth in God's church is the work of the Holy Spirit. All growth in God's church is the work of the Holy Spirit. Numeric growth, spiritual growth, and the wind blows where it pleases. Um, the Spirit is going to do what the, whatever the Spirit wants to do, but the Spirit does work through His church. He works through the body of Christ. He works through the efforts of believers. So my only point in bringing those things up was that when people look for a silver bullet, it, it's not out there. When I look at, 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 at Scripture and I say, what are the efforts where the Lord seems to accomplish great things? It's in people who had an encounter with their Savior, and they were touched by the message of forgiveness and grace that had been made crystal clear to them through that encounter. And they now had a conviction inside of them that it was their responsibility to share that gift that they themselves that had been given. That conviction is spirit-wrought. It's the Holy Spirit living them in through the Word. That conviction also can come from leadership, holding the mission of the church before the eyes of the people. Uh, but the, the point that I'm making is that I don't want anybody to walk out of here and think, well, our only chance of reaching into our community would be if we do this thing or this thing or this thing or this thing. I'd be fascinated if, if as you walk out of here, you just say all of us are going to just commit ourselves to this authentic Christian presence. That two or three times a month, we're going to have someone over and we're going to play the long game of building relationships with people. It'd be interesting to see what the, what the Holy Spirit does with that. The, the wind blows where it pleases. I'm not saying that's going to guarantee statistical growth. The wind blows where it pleases. I'd be fascinated to see if there was less of an emphasis on corporate outreach and more of an emphasis on authentic Christian presence. What happens two or three years from now? I, I leave it up to the Spirit, but, but I'd, be, I'd be really interested. I think this is a huge opportunity for us. Uh, um, <laughs> if, if another reputation I get is that sometimes I'm the doom and gloom guy. That is not the case at all. I'm the reality guy. I don't think you can make good decisions in a church body or in a congregation without good information. And so we have to have the information in front of us to be good stewards of the resources that God has put in front of us. But the reality is I think this is an incredible time specifically for the Lutheran church. I think the collapse of American Christianity is good for us because it's left this spiritual void that's out there that I think we can, you, as confessional Lutherans, uniquely fill. Last video clip I'm going to show you, it's only 40 seconds long. It's two 20-second clips uh, of people from contemporary culture, um, both uh, non-religious, both comedians, uh, Sarah Silverman and Bill Maher. I could have given a half dozen examples of this. Um, but I am hearing in secular culture, 
people use a churchy word. It's the type, one of those types of words which you would say, if you're going to use that in a sermon, you better explain it because no one will know what you're talking about. So the only thing I want you to take from this clip, it's, it's Sarah Silverman and Bill Maher talking about cancel culture, and they're pushing back against it. They think it's gone too far. And listen to the churchy words that they used. See if you can, you can pick up on it. Do we want people to be changed? Or do we want them to stay the same, to freeze in a moment we found on the internet from 12 years ago? And so we can point to ourselves as right and them as wrong. It's righteousness porn. We should want people to be changed. Well, someone has to tell me, why is this guy always in the doghouse with the online hall monitors of righteousness? It is a phenomenon that truly fascinates me, that every couple years, Matt Damon, one of the most likable guys in Hollywood with impeccable liberal credentials, is again flailing around in cancel culture quicksand. What's the churchy word they both used? Righteousness. You never heard that word brought up in secular culture 30 years ago. I hear it all the time now. Uh, a friend of mine, Pastor John Bauer, uh, serves on a church outside Madison. He's, uh, he serves on a commission on congregational counseling with me. Uh, he gave a, a presentation to another district and convention. If you were smart, you would have invited him. Uh, but, he, but he picked up on this whole topic about how culture is, our American culture is searching for righteousness. Let me just give you two quotes from his paper. He said, righteousness is more than just the moral quality of goodness, virtue, or even perfection. It is the assessment given by someone with the authority to do so that a person possesses that moral quality. Righteousness is not something people can easily confer upon themselves. We seek righteousness from others. When you look at what's happened in American culture in the last three years with the wokeness movement or whatever you want to call it, is not this it? People want someone else to tell them, you're okay. You're right. You're on the right side of history. It's just inert. It's inside of us. Righteousness isn't just something we need on the day we stand before God in judgment. Uh, Pastor Bauer is, is critical. He says maybe sometimes that's how we talk about it. Is righteousness is what you need on judgment day. His point is it's something we need every single day. It's just, it's woven into us. We want someone in authority, a great group or a great individual to say, you're right. It's something we need every single day leading up to that one. It isn't just for people who believe in God. It's something people who don't will inevitably seek from other, other source, as you saw those two comedians talk about. The collapse of American Christianity has left this void. We still want someone to say, you're right, you're moral, you're ethical. This is why this is a unique time, I think, for Lutherans. The thing that we can offer that even those evangelicals I taught, who I mentioned earlier, who they're practicing hospitality, but what they don't understand well is this whole concept of imputed righteousness. That the opinion, the only opinion that really matters from the person of authority, from that, that from our God, has already been delivered on us. And we have this righteousness, and it's not something that we can lose by saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Because our righteousness is not something that we produce. It's imputed to us by grace 
through faith, a righteousness of God that is by revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I think this is an incredible time for confessional Lutheranism, and I think this is an incredible opportunity for Wells. When I talk about this authentic Christian presence, we need to be friendly. Wells people are friendly. They don't think they are. I'll, I'll do a consult and I'll and I'll visit a church on a weekend. I'll talk to you know about you know, on Sunday morning. Visit on Saturday and on Sunday talk about how uh, I came to church and I can walk through the church, walk through the entry foyer, the narthex, whatever you want to call it, and no one says hi to me. And I'm like, what do you think the reason is? And they always say, well, we're sorry, we're not real friendly. I'm like, that's not what I saw. I saw a cluster of people over there talking to one another who they hadn't seen for a week. And I saw a cluster, an extended family over there talking to one another who they hadn't seen for a week. They're incredibly friendly. They were looking forward to visit with their brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem isn't a lack of a friendliness, it's a lack of awareness. You just didn't notice that there was a stranger who had entered. And, and if we can just be more alert, more aware, Welsh people are pre- we're plenty friendly to do this authentic Christian presence. And on top of that, we understand this, what America is thirsting for. Someone tell me I'm right. Well, I can tell you that you're right. You're right because of what Jesus Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. So righteousness that no one could ever take away from you. It's given to you through faith. Faith which you're not even responsible for producing, but God produces through his means of grace. And let me tell you where he produces. He produces that when the body of Christ gathers, would you like to come with me this weekend? This is a great opportunity for, for, for confessional Lutherans, I think. We began talking about Judgment Day, let's end that way. Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Living in these end times, you need to hold in, in trembling hands, Lord God, we hold this heritage. We hold on to God's word because this is the way God preserves us in our faith. And thank God he who promised is faithful, that I am not always faithful to my God, but he is always faithful to me. And as I hold on to his word and his sacraments, he keeps his promise to keep that faith alive in me. But don't just hold unswervingly to the truth that we've received. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Even in the Greek, that word spur is not necessarily a gentle word. You think of a cowboy spurring a horse It's not necessarily comfortable for the horse, but it's needed. That push is sometimes needed. Let us consider. Let's think. That's what we're doing right now. We're considering. How can we spur one another on towards love and good deeds in in a way that gives Christ's glory? Part of that is not giving up meeting together. Um, Maybe overcome the the lethargy that we wrestled with during COVID. Um, Some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another, uh, doing whatever that takes, and all the more. If you think Judgment Day is coming, then, then this becomes all the more important uh, as you see the day approaching. I think this is a great opportunity for the church, this authentic Christian presence. It's not just me. These are other church bodies uh, 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 leaning into it. Uh, I don't know what the Lord will do with it, and I'm not particularly concerned about that. I've said that a zillion times before. In 20 years from now, if Wells is 300,000 again, or, or 400,000 again, or if we're down to 250,000, I leave that to the Holy Spirit. I just would want to say that 10 years from now, we're doing all we can as as the body of Christ to be engaged with the people who the Lord has brought into our sphere of influence. Let's ask the Spirit to give us the courage, the strength to do that. And let's, let's ask the Spirit to do whatever he wants with those efforts that we make.
just quick 30-second closing story. Um, at the leadership conference in 2020, I had heard, I shared this apocryphal, apocryphal, it's one of those things, you don't know if it's urban legend or if it's real, um, but I have confirmed since then that it was real. Uh, it was that Reverend Billy Graham on his deathbed, I think it was 2017 that he passed away, uh, was just lamenting um, that there hadn't, he had hoped for like some sort of big Christian outreach effort to come out of the Southern Baptist Coalition. And he said it didn't happen. Uh, Southern Baptists didn't do it. And he said they have the zeal. Uh, they have the zeal. Um, he said like, what they don't have is the depth. They don't have doctrinal depth. They, this, that, that righteousness that I talked about, he's like, we haven't, our pastors haven't done a good job of explaining this whole concept of imputed righteousness. But then Reverend Graham said there is this little church body. Uh, it's Lutheran. And he was talking about the Missouri Synod. Uh, he somehow had, was familiar with the Missouri Synod. And he's like, if, if those Lutherans, with their doctrinal depth, if they would capture the evangelical zeal of the Southern Baptists who are willing to witness to their neighbors, it'll be shocking to see what the Holy Spirit does among us. I, I don't know if, that, if that's true or not, but it was just interesting that, you know, the, the high respect that he had uh, uh, for, for Lutheran, Lutheran doctrine. Uh, this is a time, the collapse of American Christianity, it is not a tragedy. It is an opportunity. We know what's what. We know where people stand. They, they don't tell us, oh, I go to church. And it, they're just, I'm not, I don't, and I don't think I need to. We know what's what. We have the message to deliver. And the Spirit of God is in that message. Let's, again, engage with all the people that he brings into our sphere of influence so that the Spirit can do what only he can do. Thank you for your time.